0: So we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 3-12, through 12, but before we do that, let me just start by referencing a quote by uh, A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to mind when you think of God is perhaps the most important thing about you. I'll say it again. A.W. Tozer, Christian mystic, 20th century, says, what comes to mind that when you think of God is perhaps the most important thing about you. Now, to hear that phrase, you might immediately think he's talking about the implications of eternity. What are what are my eternal implications? I think that's true, but I also think what he's saying is it's so important because what you think about God has practical, daily implications for your life. And just think about it. What comes to mind when you think of God? Means you'll think of uh, it, it determines if you think of God. What comes to mind when you think of God also determines when you're going to think of it. And this passage here, 1 Peter, is actually a prime example of somebody who's thinking about God in the midst of great difficulty. Peter, the Apostle Peter, this is on the other side of the resurrection, our side of the resurrection. He's writing to a group of uh, churches, five churches in Asia Minor, and they're experiencing what we're going to hear, uh, various trials. Various trials, means they're being persecuted for their faith, and I don't think it's an overstatement to say that they're experiencing Ukrainian kinds of difficulties, displacement, death, fear. Uh, they're in exile, and so he's writing to them because their day-to-day lives are in jeopardy because they're full of doubt, full of fear. And so he writes to them. But how does he write to them? He writes them and he tells them about God. The kind of God that comes to Peter's mind is not the God that any good first-century religious person would have ever thought. Of. It's not a, the kind of God that you could make up out of your mind. It's not the kind of God that you would make up out of your mind. But he presents the God uh, that's found all throughout Scripture, and what is that? That's the Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, this is the God who you know theologians say is. Three persons in one, equal in power and glory, um, loving, deferring each other, always working in harmonious concert together from all eternity. Um, so this is the God that he, he brings to them, And this is the God we're gonna reflect on today because just like them, when we reflect on who this God actually is, when we have a clear understanding rather than a distorted understanding of God, We're able to be encouraged, strengthened. We're able to persevere within the tremendous difficulties of life. And so let me go ahead and read 1 Peter 1. You can follow along with me. It says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. They have come so that your faith greater worth than gold which perishes though refined by fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise glory and honor when jesus christ is revealed though you have not seen him you love him and though you do not see him now you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith the salvation of your souls Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances in which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels, while they're looking at these things. That's the word of the Lord. Right. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your words, we come before texts like this, uh, Lord, we stand on holy ground. And I pray, Lord, that the trials that people are experiencing now, that you would minister to them through this passage, I pray that we would all be strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. So what comes to mind when Peter thinks of God? When Peter thinks of God, he thinks of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When Peter thinks of God, he thinks of of a God in which the Father is for him, in which the Son is with him, in which the Spirit is in him. So let's think of Peter's understanding of God is that the Father is for him. The Father's for him. You see that there in verse three. In verse three, it says, uh, he, though he's talking to people who are, who are really facing, uh, good trials, he praises God, and he says, praise God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he praises God as Father. Now, we could tease out the, the language of Lord, we can tease that out a little bit, it goes right into the Godhead, it goes right into an understanding of the deity of Jesus. We will talk about that in a, in a minute. But here, he's saying, praise be, uh, praise be to God. Father. But why does he praise the Father here? He praises the Father because it's out of the Father's mercy. It's out of the Father's mercy that they're given a new hope the resurrection from the dead into an inheritance that can never spoil or faith. And so what we need to know is that not only is the Father of Jesus Christ, not only is he the Father of Jesus Christ, but the God of the Bible is the Father of mercy. He's the Father of mercy, mercy. And the practical implication for that is mercy flows both from the Father and the Son. Mercy flows both from the Father and the Son. And I think that's a place where Christians actually get confused. We tend to think, it's so easy for us to think, because we know the story of the scriptures, that mercy flows naturally from Jesus, but less so from the Father. We think because Jesus uh, you know took the judgment of God on the cross is part his natural disposition to just uh, to extend mercy, and we tend to think that the father is less inclined to be compassionate. But that's actually not at all what the scriptures teach. The father, uh, mercy flows both from the father and from the son from all eternity. <clears throat> so the father and the son are never at cross purposes in what they did. There's never confusion between what Jesus is trying to do and what the Father's trying to do. What the Father decrees, Jesus achieves. There's, they're always working in harmonious concert together, and therefore, mercy, mercy flows from both the Father and the Son. Now, why do we get confused about that? Well, we have to understand a little bit of Protestant theology on this topic just kind of fun. And uh, I've read a lot this week around this. And basically um, I think if you could deduce it, you'd think Protestant theology goes like this. It's the Protestants believe that the justice of God was vindicated, that the wrath of God was vindicated, satisfied on the cross. Uh, It contends that Jesus died and rose again But the main reason he died and rose again was not to be a moral example. The main reason he died uh, to rise again was not to convey love to the world. The main reason he died was not to put down the work of Satan. What the scriptures teach is that the the primary reason that Jesus died, went to the the cross and died, and this is a quote from Orton. he says, Christ died to satisfy the Father's judgment against the horror of human rebellion. It's the horror of human rebellion. And this is where we get confused, right? Because we, we see a God who sends wrath and sends judgment, and we cannot imagine that this same God provides forgiveness and kindness and love. And that's where we're wrong. With that. See, what the Bible teaches is that from all eternity, what's called uh, the father and the son had, what's called a pactum salutis. A pactum salutis is a pact of salvation. And what that means is that from eternity past, they were in full agreement, that they were gonna extend mercy and redemption and an inheritance for all who would believe. So they're never operating across purposes against each other. What it means is that both the eternal father and the eternal son, Mercy flows. But, you know, another apostle in another place in scripture here uh, talks about how dizzying the compassion is that comes from the Father. This is in Second Corinthians 1, where the apostle Paul says this about God the Father. He says, the Father, he is the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from him. So why, so what's Peter doing? He's doing exactly what Paul was expressing. He's seeing the people in trouble. He's writing them a letter about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the compassion, the mercy that from all eternity is, has been that good. Thomas Goodwin says this about this kind of compassion, the quantity and the quality of this compassion. He says this, as there are a variety of miseries which a creature, a human is subject to, so God has himself a shop, a treasury of all sorts of mercies, divided into several promises there in the scriptures. So if your heart be hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to liven it. If you be sick, he has mercy to heal you. If you be sinful, He has mercies to sanctify. As large and as various as our wants, so large and various are his mercies. So we may come boldly to find grace and mercy to help us in time of need. A mercy God has for every need. So, what comes into Peter's mind when he thinks about God first is God the Father who is for us. who's sends us mercy. The second thing that he thinks of is God the Son, and God the Son uh, in our Trinitarian theology is that God is with us in order to include us. So he's with us in order to include us. Now, if you know anything about Christmas, you know that Christians believe that God came in the that he came and he dwelled on earth. He was with us, literally. Peter would say, I live with God. For three years, I lived, I dwelled with him. Uh, Joan Osborne in the '90s, I think, was in the '90s. Somebody, somebody here knows this, right? What if it, the song lyric was, "What if God were one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on a bus trying to make his way home"? That's in part. Did I get it right? Yeah, I said that sounds familiar. Yeah, thing. you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Not the slob part, but. Uh, in part, that, that's describing what God actually did do, in part. But the scriptures give us a heightened version. Uh, the scriptures give us not just his humanity, but they give us his deity too. And so in Colossians 1, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things. Being, been created through him being Jesus and for him being Jesus. He is above, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Of course, this is an astounding statement for a man to say about another man. The Apostle said that about Jesus. So God is with us, but he's not just with us to ride the bus with us, other than that's insignificant, but he's with us so that he can include in all that is his as the son of God. Notice in the passage, he doesn't go in to expounding on his deity. What he begins to talk about are the things that are bound up with this person as a child, as the son of God. And how, how others can be included in the rights and privileges that Jesus has as the son of the father. So he begins to talk about new birth. He begins to talk about a living hope. He begins to talk about an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, in faith. So let's talk about those particular things. And those things, you never want to, we never want to, we never want uh, to prize the gifts more than the giver. But here, the lines are in some sense being blurred. Because to receive those gifts is to receive the giver and to be positioned and to place in a rare, in a rare uh, unity with God the Father so that those gifts belong to you legally, forensically, not by any work of us, but by the work of God. So let's talk about what those, those gifts look like. And of course, what we're talking about is this notion that God adopts people. God adopts people into the family. One theologian named Tim Keller says this. Uh, He says, the image of adoption tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on a legal act by the father. You don't win a father. And you don't negotiate for a parent. Adoption is a legal act on the part of the father. It is very expensive and costly, but only for him. There is nothing the son does to win or earn the status. It's simply received. And so Peter is talking to a community of people, and he's reminding them of their adoption by reminding them of this new work, of this living hope, of this inheritance that will never be decreed. So what the Father decreed, the son achieved. And he's saying to the church, remember, the receive. Received was given. So first. New birth. What does new birth mean? New birth really means new life. You know, to be born again means to be born from above. It means simply to have a spiritual awakening, a legitimate, transformative regeneration of the heart. To be born again, simply what it means. And so we see that really pretty clearly in the life. Remember that Peter was a fisherman who was promised a task. That he was going to be a fisher of men. That he was he was a fisherman, that he was going to now be in ministry, and he was no longer going to gather fish, but he was going to gather human beings and bring them to the Lord. And so that's exactly what he did. And he did it in a historical fashion. Scholars, when they look at this passage, good scholars, when they look at this passage, they wonder. Does this passage come? from the oral tradition passed down by Peter? Or does this come from the hand of Peter himself? I don't think it actually matters. You know, We believe that oral tradition is part of how the scriptures were brought. God works through that. It's perfectly acceptable. But for me, I want to lean in the direction that he wrote himself. And here's why. Because in him was a new birth, and that brought about a new life. It is very difficult to go from mending fences to mending hearts. Those are completely different skill sets. And so people question this because the language is uh, not necessarily the language of the writing is not necessarily one who would spend time on the sea of gallery. But if you've ever changed professions, you know how hard you have to work to be something that you feel like you're called to be. How hard, how Labor intensive that is. If you knew how labor intensive it is, we wouldn't do it. We just stay being a fisherman. But Peter shows a life that's been changed. He shows a life that's, there's new life there. He's experienced a new birth, new motivation, so on and so forth. The second thing is a living hope. Now, the hope, the term for hope is not kind of the wishy kind of term for hope. I hope, um, I didn't even know what I actually oh, I was going to say. I hope the Mavericks win, but I don't know if that's true. Woo! You know, <laughs> Ryan hopes the Mavericks win, but if you're a Warriors fan, then you have real hope. There's an eager, yeah. <laughs> <confidence. laughs> there's a confident expectation of what is actually going to happen. Sorry that. and that's the hope that Peter's talking about. He's—it's it's not a three genies and a lamb, he has an eager, confident expectation of what is going to happen. This is a living hope, and we know the story of Peter because we've been reflecting a little bit on it, he needs a living hope, and a living hope is a hope that walks with you every day. And with every foible, with every challenge, it corrects you. It doesn't let you stay down too long, but it, it shows you why you may have stumbled and it makes you back up. Jesus is called, or Peter is called the apostle of hope. More than anybody, he talks about hope. Why is more than anybody he knew he needed it? Every day, every day he needed it. So he's the apostle of hope. He needs a living hope that confirms the merciful presence of God right now, and that's actually what he receives. This last thing, and I want to move this into this third point, is is that Peter talks about a a new birth, a living hope, but also an inheritance. An inheritance that isn't just something that is off in the distant future, but actually experiences right then and there. Christians experience the future now, and that comes about by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is the third point. So God, God is a father who is for us. He's a son who's with us and includes us by way of adoption. And you get these rights and privileges, but also that's confirmed in your innermost being by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's where you say that inheritance is actually mine. And that's what Peter experiences, but not only does he experience it, he sees others experience it as well. Peter's experience the change. And he's experienced a hope because, as the passage says, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. But that Spirit is so uh, identified with Jesus that the Spirit is actually called the Spirit of Christ. And to think about God, not just walking amongst them, he and his friends. But to imagine that God dwells within human beings would have been just as astounding, if not more, than it is for us as New Yorkers just as astounding if not more and yet he never says to the church you should have been there oh if you just walked if you just saw what i saw then you'd really believe really. he doesn't use language like that what does he say he says because of the work of the spirit he loved You've not seen him, you love him. But I'll just read the passage. So you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, the inheritance of Christians is the salvation. It is the, uh, this glorious joy because that's Christ. Our inheritance is Christ. So he never says things like you had to be there. But the word of the Spirit is such that the Spirit gives you a greater greater impression of Christ than if you were actually even in his presence. Along the shores of Galilee, you know, lots of people were healed by Jesus, were touched by Jesus, and they walked away from Jesus. So there's something about the Spirit that changes a person. So though they maybe would have wanted to be with Jesus. They, they don't need to be because they're like that, Because these are their, these are So of all the people to recognize their love, the love of the church. It's Peter. It's Peter. Peter, who struggled to love them, looks out and he says, "I want you to know that what I'm seeing, what God is, what God has decreed." has actually achieved, and the Spirit is confirming that in their hearts. I struggle to love them, but I'm looking out and I'm seeing the way that you're living and loving, and I see the way that you're persevering, and I'm recognizing that you love them although you never have what I actually have. That means that they're experiencing their inheritance right now. They have something greater than their circumstances to look for. And what does that mean? It means that when they go to heaven, and they receive their inheritance. And we all know what an inheritance is, right? There's two different kinds also. One is that you receive in the in the distant future. There's other another kind that's kind of a living will, right? Which you draw upon now. But the living will that described here is it never actually goes down. It's always there, always replenished. And so, when somebody comes to to the end of time and they're standing before God, that experience is kind of gonna be a kind of like reunion. Just imagine like a high school reunion and which you really actually wanted to go, and you really um, have life-changing friendships in that particular school. And, you know, imagine yourself just grabbing onto somebody and putting your heads together and just remembering all the experiences that you've had, good times and bad, had, private conversations that you had. Things that only this person living. And to say, and here we are. Here we are. I don't care. They're happy for you, act. I don't care if you started a company. Your relationship's not based on what you did in your future life. Your relationship is based on who you know each other. This week, I was looking at at, at, um, the Bible, and I came across Matthew 26, and I think it's one of the more frightening passages, and not to end on a frightening note, but in Matthew 26, Jesus is saying to this group of religious elites, and he says, many will say to me on that day at the end of time, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, Then I will tell them plainly, I never live. Away from me. You evil doers, and that should, if you're a Christian, that should just send shivers down your spine. It does mine, because because what Christ is saying there is, I want to be involved in the day to day realities of your life. I want to talk about the things you're struggling with. I want to talk about the ways that you don't want to read the Bible, but we're working through that and we're actually working through that so that when we come together, we will have a catalog of the experiences that only you and I actually know. Perhaps. So there will never be a doubt in your mind whether I know you or you know me. Because you will get together and you'll say, "Do you? life, we know each other. So friends, what comes to mind when you think of what God, when you think of God, actually, really does matter. Let me ask, if you're coming to faith for the first time, maybe you're coming back to faith, and maybe you've been a Christian, but you've been keeping Christ on the sidelines, in a sense. Allow Peter's words to, to encourage you, challenge you. And a lot of the, a lot of the mercy of God in the presence of God, in the promise of God. They say, I actually want to be known by this God as known." I hope we're a church that grows in that way. That's far right. Heavenly Father, who would ever think of fashioning a God like you? Lord, we thank you for the life of this fisherman, Peter, who taught us more than he he initially knew that he grew. And I pray that would be true of us. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. We we'll, we'll know you a little bit clearer, I hope, today. In Jesus' name we pray.